0: welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. From propaganda and paranoia to all-out psychological warfare, the Cold War had a huge impact on the mindsets of those who lived through it. This divided mentality is something that Martin Sixsmith explores in his book The War of Nerves Inside the Cold War Mind. And I spoke to him back in November to find out more. In the book you say that more than any other conflict the Cold War was fought in the battlefield of the mind. What made you want to write a book about the psychology of the Cold War particularly?
3: Well history and psychology are essentially my two um, uh, specialist subjects. i studied history and languages, and um, also then studied psychology. And history is great. It can be absolutely fascinating to look at what happened in the past. But I've been a journalist as well as an academic. So for me, history is more fascinating when it can tell us something about the present. So one might say that the current state of East-West relations uh, makes an understanding of the Cold War pretty relevant. Uh, You know, there's lots of talk about us slipping back into a Cold War. And that can be debated, of course. There's a lot of difference between what's happening now and what happened back then. But I think it is worth having a think about the Cold War years and uh, trying to unpick what went wrong, you know, what sort of mistakes were made, what could have been done differently, and trying to see if there are lessons that uh, could be learned. Uh, And there are plenty of histories, of course, that chart the facts and the dates and the speeches and events. But what strikes me as most remarkable is the way that the Cold War shaped not just the experiences, but the thinking of millions of people, from you know the politicians at the top, uh, to the ordinary men and women scurrying down the steps into their nuclear fallout shelters, and how some of those mental processes uh, that the cold war triggered continue to influence the way that we see the world today so the cold war clearly purported to be more than just a great power scramble for for territory uh, and both sides declared that it was a contest of competing social economic and political and ethical systems to a certain extent with each of them you know pretending that they had a monopoly on wisdom and there was no direct military confrontation so neither of the superpowers could achieve physical domination, which meant that they both deployed psychological means to keep the world convinced of their superiority. So really, the answer to the question is that psychology became a tool to foster an image uh, of the self, uh, the self as hero, and the other as uh, as villain, to convince people of their, uh, of their own righteousness. And they used overt propaganda, but also more nuanced messages. Uh, they co-opted literature and art and music and cinema to embody the message that we are right and they are wrong. And people in both East and West clearly lacked direct experience of what life was like across the divide. So they largely believed uh, what they were told about um, the other. And they both experienced uh, the fear that stems from uh, global tension between the two systems, systems that had the means to destroy the planet many times over. And so those years of rumbling hostility affected the mental well-being of individuals on both sides of the Iron Curtain. Uh, You know, the threat, that sort of existential threat, which was always there, caused social paranoia, surges of uh, collective hysteria. So to answer your question, yes, I would say that the Cold War, more than any other, was fought on the battlefield of the human mind. Um, And I'd say that 30 years on since the collapse of the Soviet Union, its legacy is still there. It's there in our politics, it's in our thoughts, and it's in our fears.
0: So I wonder if we could dig a little bit deeper into the psychology of both sides of the Iron Curtain now. So why don't we start with the West? You talked there about paranoia, collective hysteria, misunderstanding. What can you tell us about the the psychological mindset in the West during the Cold War?
3: Well, the the psychology really applied both ways. And, you know, as we say, it's it's not a sort of classic confrontation on the battlefield. It was about understanding each other, understanding each other's way of thinking, uh, trying to guess each other's intentions, and so the psychology of both sides, East and West, was very much how they understood or misunderstood the, the thinking of the other. And the Duke of Wellington, as you know, very famously said that the whole art of war consists of guessing what's on the other side of the hill. And one thing that I discovered um, when I started writing the book uh, is that in the Cold War, both sides were very bad at assessing what was on the other side of the hill. Um, And that was important uh, because in the Cold War, more than any other knowledge meant power. And both sides, the West as well as the the East, were weighed down by what psychologists call confirmation bias. Uh, And that's the tendency to select only that information that confirms our own beliefs. So, reading <laughs> as, as I went through the minutes of um, uh, government in government archives in both East and West, you know, you would find endless examples of ministers and generals and bureaucrats sifting through the evidence of enemy thinking and then unerringly selecting only those pieces that supported the views that they'd already decided to be the case. So then, you know, there were individuals who tried to cut through that. And quite often when people tried to provide better analysis of the Cold War opponent, um, the centre decided to pick and choose what fitted with their own preconceptions. So both sides, you know, clearly were striving to understand the thinking of the other, but it was a sort of guessing game. And um, in the guessing game, there was a real sort of lack of ability to understand that others might actually think differently from the way we think. They lacked what, psychology refers to as theory of mind. Um, Essentially, that means being able to recognize that other people might not share all the same beliefs and desires that we have ourselves. Very young children, for instance, don't realize that somebody might be thinking differently from the way that he or she is thinking. The the classic example is um, when a a psychologist shows a child a pack of Smarties and asks the child to guess what's in uh, the pack of uh, Smarties, and the child says, Smarties. But then when the psychologist opens the tube, there are actually pencils inside it. And so the experimenter closes the tube and then asks the child what the child thinks Susie, who hasn't seen inside the tube, will think is in it. And if the child replies, smart is, we can say that he or she possesses insight. He realises that Susie can have a mistaken belief. But if he says pencils... It means that he doesn't yet understand how the mind works. Uh, you know, children have to be four or five before they acquire that theory of mind. And some people never do. Uh, and, you know, reading through the archives, it struck me that a lot of people who were guessing what was going on in the minds of the enemy, it hadn't acquired theory of mind. And it's important because it lets us put ourselves in somebody else's shoes. It means taking on that mental states can differ From reality, and that people's behaviour can be predicted from their mental states.
0: I wonder if you could just give us some more specifics about the assumptions that each side made about the other.
3: Yes. um, It's essentially that neither side twigged that the other side was different from the way uh, they thought about things. Um, And there's a very famous example in 1946. Of an American diplomat called George Kennan, who was in Moscow, uh, had spent the war there. And he wrote a document that came to be known as the Long Telegram. And he essentially, in that, tried to trace the development of Soviet thinking uh, at the end of the Second World War. From his experience, first-hand experience, he was a career diplomat. He'd had ex- extensive knowledge of the Soviet Union, he spoke Russian, he empathized with the Russian people. But Kennan harbored, you know, no illusions about the Soviet leadership. He knew that they were slippery customers. Uh, He knew that they'd take whatever they could get in diplomatic exchanges and give nothing in return. And he went to great lengths to try and inform his bosses at the State Department of the misgivings that he had in that sort of brief honeymoon period at the end of the Second World War. Uh, But Washington steadfastly refused to take any notice of what um, Kennan was saying. They just didn't want to rock the boat. So by 1946, Kennan was in complete despair, and he put down his thoughts in a very long telegram to Washington. He said, later, I had to tell them that this was the same group of people, Stalin and his colleagues, who tried to make a deal with Hitler at our expense and had not changed their views about the West. So Kennan understood a lot about the Soviet leadership and about the psychology that drove Uh, Stalin. Uh, He understood that Stalin was bent on expanding Soviet power, but he had a more nuanced uh, understanding of the way that the leadership was thinking. So he wrote in his telegram that in the minds of the Russian people themselves, there was little appetite for international aggression. And he said that the Russian people by and large are friendly to the outside world. They're eager for experience of it. They're eager above all to live in peace and enjoy the fruits of their own Labour. So the result, according to Canon, again, this is very hard for Washington to take on board, was that the Soviet leadership was actually obliged to convince the Soviet people to fear a menacing Western Enemy. And Kennan was onto their tricks. Uh, he knew that they were using psychological warfare to manipulate people's minds. So fake news uh, it was already on the agenda in 1946. Um, the very disrespect of Russians for objective truth, Kennan wrote, indeed their disbelief in its existence, leads them to view all stated facts as instruments for furtherance of one ulterior purpose or another. So, in effect, um, Kennan was warning that the Kremlin was trying to cloud. Western judgment, and that Washington shouldn't step into the trap. So that's kind of an example of how the West, you know, were warned about that. What was going on? Kennan's long telegram dissected the workings of the Soviet mind. He he got inside the thoughts and the desires of the. Soviet leadership. But his message that the Soviets should be handled with, uh, you know, confidence, but with also with care and understanding, went completely unnoticed, at least at the beginning. Obviously, later it had a much bigger effect uh, on Western thinking. And there's a, you know, there's another example of, of a mirror image of that, which, uh, which we can talk about. <laughs>
0: Why don't you share that with us?
3: Yeah. Well, uh, less famous than Kennan's tele- telegram, but written at the same time, is A version, sort of mirror image of that, by by, written by a Soviet diplomat in Washington at the time, a fellow called Nikolai Novikov, and he was asked by the Kremlin to provide kind of a a a version of how the American mind works. And you know, you can read what he wrote, and you can see he's doing his best to try and comprehend the psyche of the of the opponent of the enemy, uh, as as it would become. Uh, But you can see that he fell into every um, trap of preconceived thinking of confirmation bias. You can see that he was constrained very much by the need to conform to Marxist principles, first of all, uh, namely that the conflict between capitalist states was inevitable, that the downfall of capitalism was only a matter of time. And you can see Novikov kind of consciously trying to fit the evidence to demonstrate that this view was correct. So he's at pains, for instance, to prove that Washington and London were at loggerheads uh, and that they'd soon be an open and possibly armed conflict. Uh, and that capitalism was doomed to collapse and that's actually true of quite a lot of soviet analysis of that period and um, you can see with the benefit of hindsight that the intelligence uh, you know including a lot of stuff that had been gathered by KGB operatives at considerable risk to themselves had to be tailored by the analysts to support the views and often the very self-deluding views held by the kremlin and you could see, you know, at home in, in the Soviet Union, the same thing was happening with domestic propaganda, because um, the received opinion was that Soviet socialism, by definition, could not be wrong. Uh, so any failings in industry or agriculture and food supply couldn't be the result of problems with the Soviet system. They had to be the result of foreign plots or sabotage. Uh, so uh, this sort of phantom enemy was routinely blamed. And the upshot of that uh, was that real problems were actually not dealt with, uh, or they were discussed endlessly in a sort of fruitless search for an ideologically correct solution. And the Soviets, you know, just like the Americans, projected their own views on the West. uh, And it was easier for them because there was no independent media in the Soviet Union. Uh, So the leadership uh, could essentially tell the Soviet people whatever it wanted to tell them. But also in this sort of mirror um, sort of shadow dance that's going on, they kind of convince themselves that because the media are not independent in the Soviet Union, then it must be the same in the West. So Novikov, in his telegram, writes that, you know, obviously all the American media are working under the instruction of the government. um, These uh, American newspapers are being told what to write by the The government in Washington. And he wrote that clearly because that was happening in the in the Soviet Union. Uh, So he writes, um, you know, the American media are being instructed to create an atmosphere of war and psychosis among the masses, preparing them for conflict with the Soviet Union. And he wrote that because that was what the Soviet media were doing themselves. So you can see, you know, you can see the same thing on both sides. You can see it in reverse. You can read US um, intelligence and you can see how their analysts were viewing Kremlin politics through the sort of lens of what they were used to. In America. So we get lots of speculation, for instance, about the existence of different opinions and different political views among the Soviet leadership, you know, about Stalin having to accommodate the policies of different political movements. And they wrote that because that was happening in the US. It clearly wasn't happening in the Kremlin. There's very little understanding of what the Bolsheviks euphemistically called democratic centralism in other words that the leadership made the decisions and everybody else just accepted them and you know oddly i think we kind of live in a world where decision makers still fail to examine their own preconceived motivations and assumptions and you know where we still project our fears onto the other and where decisions turn on the quirks and anxieties of the men and women who lead us and you know neither side still seems to be making the sort of informed decisions under those under those conditions.
0: to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: Russia is not like us. Russia is different. But Russia is not an irredeemable country. The the millions of Russian people are ordinary people like us. And if we want Russia to change, we have to engage with it. It's no good shouting at the Kremlin. We need to talk with it.
2: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down.
1: Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer.
2: Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva.
0: Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh?
2: You know what I said.
1: Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to live translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer.
0: You just said there that um, decisions can often um, hinge on the quirks of the men and women who lead us. And that is something that you look at through the book. There's a lot of interesting characters leaders in the book. Um, And the ways that they thought and acted did have Concrete impact on the populations that lived under them. I wonder if you could give us some examples of interesting character studies in the leadership.
3: Well, there's plenty of that. <laughs> I mean, a word of warning: we all know Tolstoy's theory of history that history isn't made by the actions of great men. You know, that history is actually made by a sort of concatenation of the endless microscopic events that are the work of the, the the little man. You know, the millions whose names are never mentioned in the history books, but who between them are the real drivers of history. I, I mean, you know, I think there's a bit of a sort of Tolstoy and, quasi-socialist agenda behind all that. Of course, he's making a point, but I think we can still look at the big beasts, you know, and how they thought and acted. We don't need to say that the actions of a Stalin or a Churchill or a Roosevelt were the only determining factors. But I think it is, you know, fair nonetheless to look at, look at them, and we have, you know, of course, to do with the, the lens of hindsight, and a lot of what we see can't be objectively corroborated. Uh, but psychologists nowadays have attempted to analyze. Stalin, for instance, uh, they come up with some intriguing results. So, what I've tried to do in the book is mix that retrospective psychoanalysis with contemporary accounts uh, that are often, you know, quite revealing. Uh, there was a lot of speculation in Washington, for instance, about the in the West as a whole about the character of Stalin. But Washington and London never really sort of they didn't really quite get how Stalin operated. Um, uh, there, there was one fellow, um, uh, an American diplomat, who worked in the American embassy in Moscow in the nineteen fifties. He was a man called Robert Tucker, and he did observe Stalin at first hand. And he was quite a sort of um, devotee of uh, Freudian psychology. He uh, so he he wrote a lot about what he saw uh, of Stalin, um, and he uh, Tucker came to the the view, I, not one that would sort of nowadays be objectively. Supported, I don't think, but uh, that the, he came to the view that Stalin was suffering from a dangerous psychological disorder. Um, and he wrote that Stalin was... Um, A person who experiences basic anxiety, uh, resulting from adverse emotional circumstances in his early life—okay, speculation—but you know there we are. That was the kind of thing that was going on then. And that Stalin finds a rock of inner security by forming an idealized self-image. For example, Tucker writes as a great warrior or a saint-like. He's so he says repressed self-hatred in Stalin is experienced as hatred of others. Now we're kind of getting somewhere here, I think. And in particular, others on whom this is projected are likely to be those who have incurred the neurotic person's vindictive animosity by somehow failing to affirm him as the idealized self that he mistakenly takes himself to be. Uh, so Tucker, you know, he's clearly basing his diagnosis um, on uh, Freudian psychology but also very much on the German American post-Freudian psychoanalyst Karen Horney. So he's he looks in Horney's work for a psychological explanation of how of why Stalin is behaving the way he's behaving. And Tucker says that Stalin must be a neurotic personality possessed of an unprecedented plenitude of political power. And he says that's the most dangerous combination you can possibly hope to get. And and as with Kennan, Tucker tried to send this diagnosis to the State Department. But again, the the people in Washington just showed very little interest. And uh, the West continued to frame its dealings with Moscow on the assumption mistaken, as we now kind of all agree, that Stalin was a rational man whose um, actions were based on um, ruthless but lucidly calculated real politique. Um, so the West was kind of relying on that political consensus that had been formed by years of Western reporting from Moscow, um, and, you know, it didn't take any notice of what um uh, Tucker was writing. So, you know, when Western observers, not just um, Tucker but Frank Roberts and the uh, and William Hater in the the British embassy wrote about the um the cult of personality surrounding Stalin, the West was very reluctant to think that this was a sort of self-generated artificial cult. Um and Soviet officials were endlessly reassuring them, oh don't worry, the the adulation is is genuine. People really do love Stalin. It's you know, maybe a little enthusiastic, but it's a spontaneous outpouring of love. And Washington kind of swallowed that line that Stalin, you know, kind of tolerated this hero worship with a a sort of bemused self-deprecation. But Robert Tucker saw through it um, and he became convinced that Stalin was the architect of his own uh, personality cult and that this was the result of deep-seated paranoia. And Tucker said it was a projection of his own monstrously inflated vision of himself as the greatest genius of Russian and world history so he said stalin had this enemy complex you know belief that he was surrounded by dangerous foes um, and he argued against washington's belief that stalin was merely the mouth you know the mouthpiece of the politburo and, and even a sort of moderating factor so that was a kind of you know a slippage between testimony from on the ground and people's preconceived ideas in washington uh, and london
0: so If I may, I'll circle us around a little bit back to, as you say, Tolstoy's view of history, that it's not just about the leaders, it's about the everyday people, the populations that lived under them. What do we know about the impact of all of this sense of impending international dread on ordinary populations during the Cold War?
3: Yes. I mean, that's probably the the most interesting psychological aspect of the whole thing, because that threat of... Mutual destruction between the two sides clearly loomed over um, everyone in the world. And, you know, everybody who read the newspapers, etc. because actually. And that, you know, that sort of constant flow of, um, you know, bad news um, clearly did threaten people's mental well-being. The effects of a hydrogen bomb were almost inconceivable. And because they were inconceivable... It was um, doubly menacing. And, you know, one of the biggest strains on mental health was that terrifying feeling of being powerless in the face of an unstoppable external threat. You know, psychologists call it an external locus of control. And that's one of the biggest, you know, it's recognized now as one of the biggest factors in triggering uh, depression and paranoia. So governments had to decide how to to deal with this, and there was it was a rather sort of cynical reaction, you know, rather than sort of properly inform people about the threats and you know what may lie ahead. Um, governments in East and West kind of prioritised token efforts to, so that people felt that they they did have some control over events. For instance, our grandparents and parents. Generation was told to sort of build fallout shelters in the backyard of the house. And the authorities knew this would be completely useless, but nonetheless, it served a sort of psychological purpose because it made people feel they had some sort of agency. And the American psychologist Irving Yanis, who later became very famous for the concept of groupthink, advised the uh, American authorities that they could deploy emotional training techniques that would build up a tolerance for insecurity. In other words, you were kind of teaching people to live with this terrible dread, this sort of mental disruption, and not give in and crumble. So uh, civil defence, for instance, would be a way of channeling apprehensions about a nuclear attack in order to minimise what Janice called um, disruptive fear reactions. So by encouraging people to build their shelters, you could sort of lessen resentment towards the central government's lack of action And you could also imbue the individual with a sort of sense of control over his or her chances of survival. And the most sort of striking example of this is um, the Duck and Cover program, um, where uh, Duck and Cover was where American schoolchildren from quite a young age were taught that if the Alarm goes and there's going to be nuclear attack, what you need to do is duck and cover, dunk under your school desk, cover your eyes and your ears, and that somehow will protect you. No adult clearly had any belief that that was going to save these children. Uh, But but again, it gave them a sort of sense of agency, a sense of doing something. But for many of that generation who went through the duck and cover exercises, it it left a lifelong impact. Um, It left that sort of paradigm of existential anxiety, really, that, that continues even today. I'll just read one piece of testimony, a very striking one, from a woman called Amy Morris Young. And many years later, she was in her kitchen in California when she heard the sound of a distant explosion. And that triggered that sort of memory of the nightmare fears that had remained lodged in her psyche from her childhood. And she writes, I looked down and I saw my baby daughter. My hands shook as I unbuckled the plastic clasp of her tiny seatbelt and scooped her out of her chair, crushed her to my chest and ran straight for the closet in my bedroom. How ludicrous is it that in that horrible moment, when I knew that it had finally happened, that an atomic bomb had been dropped on us and it was the end of the world, all I could think of was Bert the Turtle and duck and cover. I crouched on the floor of the closet, holding my tiny girl, rocking and praying, saying over and over and over, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, because I was so sorry, so ashamed that we grown-ups, time after time, throughout history, seem to have done such a poor job of taking care of each other and the earth. We couldn't seem to stop hurting each other, playing war games with real casualties, and now it was too late. And I think that kind of speaks to that sort of the deep-seated trauma that many people imbibed um, in those years.
0: Something that you mentioned earlier that I wanted to return to in a bit more depth was um, the idea of psychological warfare. Can you give us some examples of the ways that um psychology was weaponized actively weaponized during the Cold War?
3: Yeah, I mean there was plenty of that. <laughs> the whole Cold War was um you know, is the two systems competing to convince the world that they were the ones who knew the path to the glorious future and trying to sort of plant that idea into the heads of millions of even billions of people around uh, the globe. Um, so in the course of that sort of um, arm's length um, sparring, the two sides kind of developed distorted images of themselves, you know, a picture of what could go wrong uh, if the other side were to gain the upper hand. And they both, you know, they both wanted to eradicate any perceived influence of the other. You know, they um, it ended up in sort of witch hunts and false accusations um, and the thought that the other side was permeating our society like a virus, you know. And it, it pushed them to greater and greater lengths in this sort of propaganda war. It became extremely fierce. At its most extreme, uh, it would entail experiments in mind control, um, fears about brainwashing. Uh, America, for instance, feared that its boys in Korea were being indoctrinated by the communists. Um, and there's a very famous film with Frank Sinatra, the Manchurian candidate, in which, um, you know, we see at first hand how the communists were literally brainwashing our boys. Um, And, you know, the CIA, CIA director, Alan Dulles, he said that behind the Iron Curtain, there's a vast experiment underway to change men's minds, the perversion of the minds of selected individuals who are subjected to such treatment that they are deprived of the ability to state their own thoughts. And the Americans clearly had to hit back on this. The CIA was also carrying out its own experiments <clears throat> to test the limits of the human brain, uh, to see what, uh, to what extent it could be controlled um, externally. And then, of course, there were all the dirty tricks, um, you know, the lies and the fake news that we're all familiar with today. And when the propagandists got the psychology right, <clears throat> when they tapped into something you know, really deep in people's minds and prejudices and belief systems, these could be extremely powerful I'll give just one example. Uh, it's a, a, a KGB operation called Operation Infection. And in October 1986, so it's you know relatively recent in Cold War terms, there was a cartoon in Pravda on the front page of a shifty-looking scientist and a grinning American military officer exchanging a test tube for a fistful of dollars. And the vial, the test tube, is labelled AIDS virus. And all around it, there are sort of swastika-shaped bacteria. And at the feet of these two men, there are dead bodies. And the, the implication is hardly subtle, that the American fascists were, you know, they were at it again. They were murdering innocent people in their plot to dominate the world. And above the cartoon, there was a, a brief explanation by the Pravda um, editorial board, which they, <laughs> in which they quoted, and it says, this is a quote from newspapers, does not say from which newspapers. Uh, I couldn't find it anywhere. I think it was made up. But uh, the quote from newspapers says, According to some Western scientists, the virus of AIDS, a serious disease for which no cure has yet been found, was created in the laboratories of the Pentagon. So you can kind of see what, you know, so that was the first mention in 1986 of what became known as Operation Infection, and the, uh, it, it was unelaborated, it, you know, the theories came out that the AIDS had been manufactured as part of a biological defence programme at Fort Dietrich in Maryland, that it was being deployed by the CIA against um, innocent victims in Africa in the Third World, where, you know, the are sort of battle for ideological dominance was going on um, and it was an opening shot in the campaign that would see that story you know cited and multiplied it, in the days before social media it went viral if you'll excuse the pun and uh, you know so many new newspapers reported that aids had you know originated in the, the labs of the cia that it kind of became accepted and so the point I want to make, though, is that the effect of disinformation, what we would today call fake news, creates that climate of sort of pervasive uncertainty in which no one seems to know what can be trusted and what can't be. The aim of Soviet disinformation was you know, clearly to undermine the confidence of people in the West in the open nature of their so-called free society and in the probity of the man who ran it. And Moscow was very good at sort of seeking out the potential sort of weak points in the nation's psyche and and applying pressure to them. And the impact of fake news is absolutely profound because the the mind creates sort of mental maps and it finds a way to redraw them, to draw in these these so-called facts. And once they're in there, they're very hard to get out. So, for instance, as late as 1992, the then director of foreign intelligence uh, for Russia, no longer the Soviet Union, Yevgeny Primakov, publicly declared, admitted, that Operation Infection was a deception that had been cooked up by the KGB. There was no truth at all to the rumors that it was a CIA plot. But even then, vast numbers of people refused to change their views. They continued to believe that the US had deliberately manufactured um, AIDS. And um, uh, even the uh, the American military's own um, historians, uh, a fellow called Thomas Bokhart, wrote that um, once the AIDS conspiracy theory was lodged in the global subconscious, it became a pandemic in its own right. And uh, you know that's that's one story, but there are so many others like that, and it just shows the sort of power of psychological warfare.
0: Something that you draw on throughout the book is your own trips over the years behind the Iron Curtain, as it were. What kind of insights did that give you into uh, the way in which Soviet thinking worked, perhaps?
3: Yes. um, Well, I've been going to the Soviet Union for a long time. I think the first time I went was as a schoolboy in 1969. Uh, We were very lucky uh, that my grammar school, Manchester Grammar School, had um, uh, started teaching Russian and we got this very dynamic young russian teacher who put us all on a train and we headed off through um through eastern europe um we uh you know we pitched up in moscow very naive We were sort of i suppose our first my first sort of insight was um ending up in the national hotel which is opposite the kremlin and a very historic hotel but in those days Uh, All hotels were equal. There were no first class, no second class, so you just got allocated to a hotel. We were very lucky. We got allocated to the hotel where uh, Lenin and Krupskaya used to live in the years after the revolution. In fact, uh, one of my um, friends got room 107, where there was a plaque saying occupants of this room were Vladimir Lenin and Nadezhda Krupskaya. Um, And, you know, the sort of early insights, I suppose, was that this was a very odd system because um we were endlessly being approached by the locals and they could see we were foreign because we were wearing t-shirts and jeans and we were you know chewing chewing gum and we had biros to write with and they they wanted all these things they wanted they wanted t-shirts they wanted chewing gum they wanted biros um so you know that kind of was a bit of an eye-opener um, and that you know made me then want to carry on studying russian so i did and um, and i kept going back to uh to, to, to Russia over the years. Uh, Leonid Brezhnev was still in power. Um, one thing that did strike me was that it was very hard life that people were living there, but actually they had developed the sort of psychological defence mechanisms to, to cope with it. And one of those defence mechanisms was humour. Um, I love that sort of wry um, Angry humour about the the shortages that were that were affecting people. Um, you know, it was the time when Brezhnev's fear of um, change and commitment to the arms race he'd been sort of spent into the dirt by by the West uh, meant that people really struggled to get life's necessities. You know, including food and adequate clothing and luxury goods like TVs and fridges were very very rare. And there was a joke. About the man who does get on the waiting list for a fridge. Even getting on the waiting list was an achievement. And so the man goes along to the, um, the state fridge monopoly office and says when can I get my fridge and the man says uh, on the 10th of August the year after next and the man looks in his diary and says oh that day's no good and the official asks him why and the man says because that's the day the plumber's coming to fix my heating so <laughs> you know those that, kind of I liked all those jokes because they showed that people were having a hard time but they could still laugh about it and then I, I, I was at Harvard University for a while and um, for a few, few years and um, I saw the way the Americans viewed the Russians and you know, there was great um, mistrust on both sides. Um, but the difference was that in the Soviet Union, people mistrusted America, but they also kind of envied it. Uh, and there was very little the other way around. There's very little envy on the American side of what was uh, happening in in Russia. So that sort of put things into perspective for me. And the other thing that also put Things in perspective was having friends on both sides, you know, very close Russian friends. So, you know, it's uh, I hear all this anti-Russian rhetoric nowadays, and I just think, you know, think before you say these things because, you know, you're talking about a system which has its own psychological baggage, and you kind of have to learn how to deal with Russia. You know, Russia is not like us; Russia is different, but Russia is not an irredeemable country. The, you know, the, the millions of Russian people are ordinary people like us. And if we want Russia to change, we have to engage with it. It's no good shouting at the Kremlin. We need to talk with it.
0: That was Martin Sixsmith. His book, The War of Nerves, Inside the Cold War Mind, is on sale now, published by Profile. If you're interested in more on the Cold War, then make sure you check out our Everything You Wanted to Know episode on the subject. You can find that by searching for Cold War in your podcast feeds. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.